Welcome to Unpack This, where academic misfits go to unload their shit. Today, we have our guest, G. Pat Patterson, who is an associate professor of English. They co-edited the first special issue of Transgender Rhetorics in the field of rhetoric and composition. They served a two-year term as co-chair of the Four Seas Queer Caucus, which is a disciplinary organization in our field. And they recently received our field's 2022 Stonewall Service Award for their record of service to LGBTQ communities. And they're also an awesome human and a good friend. So we invited them partially to hang out with us, but also because they recently published this phenomenal article titled Loving Students in the Time of COVID, A Dispatch from LGBT Studies. And in this article, GPAT writes about how the pandemic forced them to rethink the demands that are made of us as educators and the demands that we then put on our students. And I know that we've been talking a lot about how, I mean, and by we, I mean the field in general talks a lot about how the pandemic has made us rethink a lot of things about pedagogy, but this article proposed and modeled some paradigm shifts that I think are really important to be talking about and I think was a really fresh take given how many takes there are on the internet. So thank you for joining us, GPAT. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so, so, so happy to talk to you. About this. Just a second, GPAT. I, I want to interrupt. I'm so sorry. I want to interject. I keep trying to tell Joe that we have a vast audience of listeners, but there may be one or two people who are new to the podcast. So we forgot to do our spiel to say who we are because it was an awesome introduction to you. Yeah. So I shouldn't assume that our listeners are regulars. I am Joe Shu, <laughs> And I'm your other co-host, Constance Bailey. Thanks, Constance. So... Back to our topic of the day. I actually thought a really great way to get us into the article was to start with your concluding sentences, which I thought were beautiful. And it says, educators must point students toward a life that is possible and that is not only livable, but one that is worth living. This, at minimum, calls upon us to confront that which is unlivable and unsustainable in our own pedagogies for ourselves and for our students. And I just wanted to ask what that reflection process looked like for you? How did you decide what was livable and unlivable? Yeah, I'm going to answer this by like talking about like a a psychologist that I've been reading named uh, Lindsay Gibson, who kind of talks about, and I think first, I think higher ed and a lot of institutions, right? um, Steeped in the the violences that they're steeped in, encourage us to uh, siphon off our emotions and our embodied response to like our teaching and our workplace practices. Um, And I also think life does that to a lot of us as well, right? Um, But one of the things that really stuck out to me recently was um, this comment that I read in, uh, in in a book by Lindsay Gibson talking about dread. Like when we experience dread, um, that most of us are, like have a negative response to dread, but it's actually kind of like um, a guardian of our health. And then it's actually like a friend to us because it wants us to treat ourselves better, right? Um, and it wants us to pay attention to the thing that we are do not want to look at. And the reason we don't want to look at it is because usually that's something we should be like walking away from, right? Um, it doesn't feel healthy and sustainable. And so I think that that moment of like, even just sort of looking at like, what are the things in my teaching and in my practices that I dread, right? Um, and I don't know if you all have those things, but I feel like there are just certain things um, about, uh, about teaching that I had come to dread. Um, and it really just sort of depends on the course. I think the things that I would come to dread um, in, a, in a, say, a composition course or a technical writing course might be different, right, than an LGBT studies course. But I think that, like, starting from that place and then just also, like, really listening to our emotions and realizing that those are those, like, kind of canaries in the coal mine. And if you're feeling that way, then, like, totally your, your students are going to be, you know, feeling something similar, if not, like, in a sort of hyper drive. So yeah, um, that's my, that's my short answer is just to do the thing that I think that we are told all the time. Like we, we must, you know, put on our professional selves, right. And our personal and embodied and emotional selves somehow just what, I don't know, dissociate from the world or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I I love that. And I love that it practices that politics that we know from black feminism, from disability studies, that the body has knowledge and that we should be listening to it. But we are told to, and still too often cordon that off as the thing that we think about and not the thing that we apply in our own teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because we, uh, speaking back to that curiarchal violence, right? Am I saying that word right? I am saying, 
Yes. Curiarchal. Yeah. That's how I pronounce yes. it. <laughs> okay. Thank goodness. Because here I am like, ah, so if you know the words that you use and you're like, I've only ever read it and typed it <laughs> like how, anyway. So, um, like, I think that that violence, that these forms of violence, like teach us, right. That our emotions are not like that our emotions and our embodied responses are like not wise. Right. When in fact, oftentimes they get, they hit the mark right but yeah. well before our minds ever get there yeah right? in fact they are wiser because they're not imposing those narratives that are circulating in our head huzzah yeah. yes yes <laughs> Wait, uh, pause and step back because i don't want to assume knowledge on the part of our audience do you want to define curiarchal for our audience oh can can i can i like touch my nose and say not it on that one and, and just in the sense that i feel like i am going to no that's not fair i'm not going to dodge so if you're walking through uh, the world as a multiply marginalized person, you're not just having like one vector of sort of violence or the ways that you're moving through institutional space happening at once. No, no. And so I kind of think of it as that as as that sort of interstitial. Is yeah, that the right word? Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Experience, uh, embodied and emotional um, and political sort of experience of living in the world in uh, in and among those vectors and how you're going to be encountering sort of. Uh, resistance and how you're going to be brushing up against institutions and formations of interacting with each other that are not meant for you on purpose. Sure. Yeah. It's one of those words that I, I recognize as jargon, but also capture something dense and complicated yes. in a way that allows us to have a shortcut. For real. And I hope that I did it justice. Yeah. Do, do y'all want to add anything to that? Cause I would be, is there anything else how, in terms of how you all would. For me, I, I similarly had that visual image of the convergences, it, it actually reminds me of what all three of us study, actually. It's how systems of domination engage one another that are bound up in one another. So sexism, racism, ableism, heteronormativity, all of these things are interconnected in the structures that we have to move through. And for me, that's, that's what it captures. Constance, thoughts? No, I will tell you, I'm over here noting things that like, okay, follow up on this and also send GPAD a link on this. So I'm over here on one of my many sort of side projects because there was a really great article. I think it was Damon Young in the Rude, Very Smart Brothers or one of those columns. And it was about the words that we read, that academics read all the time that we never pronounce and how, you know, like the first time they encounter. And I don't know what the word was. I, I'm I'll just say Foucault just to be silly, but I don't know. That was my first word. Anyway, I'm sorry. Continue. (laughs) I don't know if that was actually one of the ones from the article, but it was quite hilarious. And so I was like, oh my gosh, it's everybody. It's great. So yeah. that was my, that has nothing to do with the wonderful conversation <laughs> about these convergences that you all were discussing. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I think thank that's you. great. And and truly the first word I remember being a master's student, you know, as a first gen sort of sitting in this classroom and I we were actually just discussing Foucault and you know, I wasn't uh, an English lit or English major at all in undergrad. And so I had never heard anyone say Foucault's name before. And so I, I think I pronounced it Foucault or something. And I rem- I will never forget like that experience of shame of like having like another graduate student laugh at me like, you lib, you know, like <laughs> just, you know, just sticks with you. But I think it's good because those, those hurt spaces are teaching lessons about what you value. And what I value is never making someone feel like less than because mm-hmm. they don't happen to know how something that I that I just found out yesterday anyway. So like, why? Anyway, I digress. Oh, that's a large part of this article and why, we, why it resonates so much with us, right? And that, that's a part of my stick that I sort of lean into because I am subject to mispronounce things anyway. I also am half blind, so I probably did not see or read the word correctly. So I just make shit up and I just tell students, you know, you can correct me. (laughs) I mean, that's a really important move to learn to make in the classroom, right? I don't know. I will look this up with you. We will have conversations about this. There is no certain knowledge about this thing. Also, the ways we perform knowledge are, in fact, mechanisms of exclusion, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yes. So this conversation actually gets me to a question that I had, which I think is a really great connection to this, which is, Another passage that I really loved from your article, which says creating immersive, which is talking about creative immersive learning experiences, which is one of the mm-hmm. like critical central points of this, which I loved. I, I also learned that since I borrow heavily from your syllabi a lot. Oh. And so you're talking about 
focusing on creating immersive learning experiences instead of that model where students go away and read and come back and discuss in the classroom or sit quietly and awkwardly and hope that somebody else will discuss. And you say, for students, this shift required a rethinking of their role in the classroom from someone expected to provide correct answers and polished error-free products, instead to an emerging intellectual who draws from left and right hemispheres of the brain to theorize alongside their peers. And I'm interested in hearing you talk about these immersive learning experiences, what they look like, maybe something that you really enjoyed or how you go about creating them. Yeah. So, you know, I want to give a shout out to the really talented people at like who who are faculty and staff at the Center for Teaching and Learning at Kent State. They did this workshop. It was like the summer in, in between major semesters, pandemic semesters. And um, I, I took whatever the, the training was in part, I won't mind because I was a stipend and I am poor. Um, but also because, um, be, but also because I thought, you know what, like I could, I could learn things from this and I'm also teaching graduate students. I was like subbing for our WPA, um, because I'd done that role in my previous institution in terms of the, the teaching, preparing students to teach, uh, writing studies courses. So I was like, I'm going to do this, you know, for so many reasons. And, but one of the things that they talked about is that we do this thing where we like assign students a piece of writing and then we like come in and it's like, let's discuss the piece of writing. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what we do. This is humanities. You know, and I'm just like, you know, in my very big feelings, right. Um, yeah. and behind my zoom screen uh, with my mute on my, you know, my camera down and all this. So, us, you know, they talk about like that teachers are bad students. And I think that that might be true, but I also think that we, if we pay attention to the ways that we're bad students, that's telling us something about teaching. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, if that, but, but in any case, I had this, I wasn't expecting that to, to throw me. And for some reason I got this, this, I, this, the, the way they, they were explaining it about it sort of made me think about um, museum curators that that's a, that, that in, in, in the not violent ways, but in the kind of, or maybe in like an art museum, like a curating this experience or like an, an artist is a better way of putting it, like installation art that you're kind of creating this experience for people to like, actually walk through um, and that the idea is if you're like okay I'm going to um, assign a piece of writing I'm going to create a space outside of class for us to talk like to read and talk collectively so that when we get to class instead of saying I want you to regurgitate all of this and show you that that's what learning is like you kind of have to model like showing them what connections like like identifying a, an experience and then saying ah like this could be a way for for students to kind of understand how the theories that we just read sort of attach to everyday context or how there is a sort of interanimation between life and theory and art. And not that those are separate things at all, right? Um, but that they are and giving, and giving students a space to not only connect what they're reading to like various texts, but also to like create their own. Um, so I think one of the, um, most favorite uh, units that I had was in a queer theory course that I taught. And, you know, there are ways, like I think in LGBT studies and also I think in English studies, there's like a lot of like attachment to doing queer theory, right? You know, and it's like this linear sort of thing, right? And I was like, wonder if I posed it as like the question, what does queer theory have to do with X? And then attach it to something surprising, right? And so like, what does queer theory have to do with coloring books? And then finding this academic article that is like searching between, so I just kind of wrote down joy words, like various things, like I love sci-fi, right? Mm -hmm. um, I love um, I love movement. I love, you know, all the whimsy, right? And then attaching things, right? Um, and so one of the things that I found was this really amazing piece, and I definitely need to give you the... Um, link to the piece and i feel very guilty that i don't know the name of the author <laughs> i'm That's terrible great. when you when you send it we'll put it in the show notes yeah and then we'll just pretend that i knew all this and i was more prepared um <laughs> so, so it was this piece about the intersection of like queer studies and fat studies and about this amazing thing that happens when you've got like a queer non-binary person who is fat who is illustrating comic books and how that can kind of like move to a space where we are the ways that we are theorizing bodies and talking about bodies 
um, is something that can be like theorized through like something as like an adult uh, self-care sort of queer coloring book that has like fat gender non-conforming uh, folks that are on the pages, right? And so we read that piece and then I purchased some of the uh, coloring books for my students to then use. So they like read the piece and then colored the piece, right? And then they talked about that experience and then drawing from that article to be like, this is what I was feeling, right? This is the thing that's sticking out to me now that I've experienced this because I feel like sometimes we do this thing where it's like, okay, I assign this, we're going to discuss it. You've said correct answers. I've emphasized this emphasize points that I want you to do. We might throw in some cute little jazz hands activity, and then we go on to the next piece, right? But if we slow down and we say, okay, like, let's assign this and then let's like have an experience and like, let's like let it last, right? Another one of my favorite units in that queer theory course was one that was talking about what does queer theory have to do with Afrofuturism and sci-fi? And so uh, I created, so I bookended, I, I bookended the pieces with like, um, various academic articles, but the the arc of the piece, we actually uh, looked at the entirety of Janelle Monae's um, discography, right, which kind of talks about this sort of like cyborg feminism and also looking at Janelle Monae's like liner notes and, and looking at the way that she slash they like were theorizing, right, this sort of, um, this, 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 this vision and so it was really kind of neat i mean and there were like little mic there were like little mini sort of activities that like i would have students do like i had them you know skim parts of the cyborg manifesto and i'm like don't even don't try to understand the whole thing i want you to just vibe i want you to listen to this particular uh janelle monet album that we're on today and as you're doing it i want you to be like skimming this piece on this like this cyborg manifesto and i want you to create some found poetry from this and then talk about why you did this and what the connections are that you're seeing and so that those are some just examples you know but those look obviously they can they can look um a little different in you know a class depending on whether it's like tech writing or comp and yeah one of the many things that i love about that one is is that i think you and i both converge on this in that queer studies trans studies disability studies all of these things come from the knowledge made by people whose experiences of marginalization created you know, knowledge. And in theory, these fields should go back to creating that knowledge that then informs how do we improve the life chances and opportunities of these people, right? Um, but yeah. sometimes these uh, these goals get lost in, in the classroom or in, in the design of curricula. And I like that you're sort of shifting one of the driving questions in your classroom from you know, what are the texts we must learn or what are the terms we must learn in this field to how does this affect my experience of the world, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. And like, and then realizing that like, like you just said, I just want to repeat that, like a coloring book is theory. A awesome sci-fi book is, is theory, right? A video game is theory right? That those are theorizing. And I feel like sometimes too, as academics, we're not necessarily really honest with ourselves. Like we'll do the same where it's like, well, I'm analyzing this and I'm building theory, but we're often interpreting texts that are also have already built that theory, but we like have this sort of like, it's mine. I've made this. No, you just publish it in a journal, sweetheart. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'm not trying to be, yeah, a tweet is theory, is theory building. So, I mean, I think that there's also a kind of like humility that I think that as academics, we really need to maybe sit with a bit more, some more than others. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe shifting to the last question that I had for you when we were talking about ethics in both what we teach and how we approach that teaching, uh, you say in your article, ethics in this context would seem to demand that educators refuse to answer the question that essentially asks us to whittle down our disciplines into a series of brandable skill sets that encourage our students to view themselves as kindling. And you're responding to that imperative that particularly is driving the humanities right now, right? Like, how do we market ourselves as this is how you get a job from this thing, right? And what you're saying, if I'm reading you correctly, is that that is the wrong question and that question is a trap. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, and, 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 and I think too, is just that even like, I think even administrators know that it's a trap, but they do this thing where it's like, well, we're supposed to be these people. If you read this book, it'll teach you to empathize. In fact, there are lots of well-read people who struggle with empathy. It's not the best answer, right? <laughs> 
mm-hmm. the eyebrows at all. <laughs> just <laughs> simultaneous mirroring of each other right now. They raise eyebrows like, yeah, how about that? Yeah. So I think that, yeah, it's like looking at better answers. And I think the thing is, is it, is that, you know, that even, I think the ways that we try to respond to that, um, sometimes like don't get at, and I don't think that there's just like one right way to answer that question, like about the importance, but I know that it's not, oh, here's me whittling down and condensing what I just said so that you can be, you know, more homogenous and seem not threatening to a corporation that will, you know, overwork you and then probably lay you off in seven years if, if, if that, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm saying too many words. So I'm going to add a pause no, here. I, I like the number of words that you're saying. Good. <laughs> so, so in light of the fact that we're not, in fact, trying to frame what we do as, you know, job material. Yeah how do you describe your guiding values or how do you even go about locating those guiding values? Yeah. Oh, well, so I feel, <laughs> so I feel like, um, and I, and, and it's interesting cause I think this tip that came up in an answer to like a different question, but I think that in fact, I, I'll, I'll, I'll stick maybe with my answer because I feel like there's a question that I think I might be getting later on that m- might get to this too. So we'll loop back around. So I'll answer the, how do we get there? I think in a different part. But in terms of like my guiding values, I I want to kind of remind myself of my student self and the part of me that's always learning and remind myself about all the ways in which like I'm always in the process of becoming and how it doesn't feel super neat to have someone sort of project our sort of pre-assumed narratives onto people. And I think a lot of us do that um, because it's a way to sort of manage anxiety to sort of project narratives onto our students or or whomever, and then to sort of act as if that has already been something that's established. So like holding space that our students are always going to be becoming and that you're never going to have that. Like as teachers, it's kind of like, kind of like being gardeners, um, but planning in gardens that like you might not ne- never see actually sort of come to fruition. Right. Um, and, and not necessarily be able to sort of like anticipate that. So just kind of holding space for like the possibility of who they're becoming. I mean, I think sometimes if we're really lucky, we might get a student or a colleague that's like, Hey, I want you to know that I have a student of yours. This happened to me years ago. I had a, uh, someone I went to graduate the school with taught this kid in a comp class lots of tough conversations and he's like I just want you to know like I've had this student you know he's in graduate school right now and he talks about like this moment as like changing the way that he was like orienting towards like other people and that see that to me and he was in an honors writing class to me like the value of knowing that he took something from my class that expanded the way that he relates to other human beings like that's to me the point of teaching writing in the first place so like I, I care more about that than about someone learning topic sentences, right? Or whatever. Because at the end of the day, that's the easy stuff, right? So so definitely part of that. But I also just feel like for me, my another value is trying to now be really intentional in, in the ways that like I'm interacting with students of like beginning from a place of like joy, not just like self-centeredly, like, oh, this is fun for me, but like, how can I create joy spaces in my classrooms? And I feel like even when we're talking about things that can be potentially really heavy, we can still hold space uh, for joy and discovery and community and reciprocity, even when we are, you know, talking about things that are tough, or even if we're talking about things that are just boring, but we kind of have to do them. Like, you know, if we're talking about like, I don't know, APA or whatever. <laughs> I was just someone who teaches a four four teaching load. I should say that my my teaching load is a uh, very comp heavy. Um, I teach maybe uh, I at least teach one or two sections of comp uh, every semester, and then upper division classes. So just to be fair, why keep on pivoting to comp? So yeah, that makes sense. I think I think something that was really uh, paradigm shifting for me when it came to thinking about teaching was thinking about what I do in the classroom as sort of orchestrating a series of encounters rather than delivering some sort of, you know, artifact of information, but along this, along similar lines. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that is so important too, because it, it, it sort of, and I think I meant to say this in here is that like, what I want to ask is instead of like, what, as a teacher, I don't want to say, oh, this is what I want them to know. Like, it's super rad if they remember those things, but like, let's just be like really clear. Like most of us, we don't, 
Yeah, I don't remember a ton of things. Right, right. So what I want to, at the end of the day, be my guiding principle is how does how does my classroom make them feel about learning, just in general, and like relating to other human beings? Like, does it make them want to learn something? Does this make me want to teach it? And if not, (laughs) this is a good place to start. That's a good, right? Listen to your heart. Isn't there a song about that? Who was that anyway? Oh God, a, yeah, a, I know. I have the tune universe, in my head. Power Listen to your heart. Yeah. Anyway, I'm done now. See now you got me to sing on your podcast, and and this is how we know my career is going to be on a slow decline from here. Oh, very much doubt it. <laughs> hey, when you can invoke '80s hair power bands ballads. or whoever that was from you know that sang that, yeah. you're, you're always in a good place. <laughs> Constance, I'm going to pass the hosting to you uh, so you can make sure you ask your questions. Oh, okay. All right. So I, I have been passed the mic, sort of, so to speak, literally and metaphorically. So to just reiterate what Joe said, love the piece. And I was not familiar with your work, so I was so thankful that Joe shared the article with me. And so many quotes resonated. I was like, well, okay, shit, Joe already quoted that one. Let me find a different quote or let me let me ask a different question. So I guess a lot of my questions um, have more to do with the actual process for people who, well, let's say graduate students or, or yeah. early career scholars who feel very tenuous and who feel in some ways because of the oversight that they receive or whatever the case may be, who don't necessarily feel that they have the autonomy, I guess, to, I don't want to say go rogue. I mean, to do what I think of as what you describe is really a very liberatory process. But in thinking about scholars who are housing very traditional programs or departments, how do they arrive at this point? Like, how do they unshackle themselves from these very traditional ideas that, you know, a lot of us are sort of rooted in and, and taught and, you know, all that good stuff. I love that question. Like, I love that question so much. And I, and I, and I love it because when you asked it, I was like, oh, yeah, how? How, G-Pat? Um, like, and, but it's a good question, right? Because I feel like uh, as, and I'm saying this as someone, I, I mean, did you, do you all, did you all have this experience in graduate school where like you would read a book, an academic book, and then maybe like, I'm going to promise you to revolutionize and you get to it. And like the end is like this sort of like really sh- like, you know, the end of the book, the last chapter is like, and here's how it applies to the classroom, but just sort of like vaguely. And you're like, damn it. Because as a graduate student, at least for me, all I wanted to know was like, okay, how do I do this thing? Like, how, you know? So, and I hope that like, that, um, I, I hope that, and I feel like when I was writing the piece too, like, um, I was really challenged. Um, I had uh, my partner read the drafts, and she was like, um, "She also is a was a, was a comp person. Uh, she doesn't work in higher ed anymore, but she was like, you, you need these descriptions.' I'm like, "No one, no one's going to care about my teaching.'" And she's like, "No, like you actually have to model what you're doing, right?" And I'm like, "Ah, no." So all this to say, like, I hope this doesn't feel like a a, a cop out, but I feel like for me, part of that is just like again, being willing to sit with like pedagogical heartbreak, Um, like actually like sitting with the things that like break your heart about teaching um, and and look at like the the expectations that are placed on me. um, And then also just the ways that I might've been professionalized, right? Um, And the ways that like we all are sort of like interpolated into these like professional cultures in which we're sort of being surveilled. (laughs) It's not neat. one Yelp star, but like, I think sitting with like, actually sitting with that discomfort and just like asking for yourself, like what hurts, like actually hurts because that, that matters because that that's, it's pointing you to parts of your pedagogical and teaching practices that don't, that don't feel great. Right. And then like asking yourselves why and how that points back to a value, right. That you need to like pull into your teaching. Um, so I feel like that is really important. And I also just kind of want to say that, like, I, I already mentioned this, but like, I feel like higher ed sort of encourages us to sort of distrust those places, right? Um, and so I think that another, how do I put this, but like a kind of philosophy or approach, I mean, we all hear the tweet, like the institutions will never love you back. And that's true. But my follow-up, my silent follow-up at three o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep from work stress is like, cool, like institutions won't let me back. How, what's the otherwise? Like, how do I live in this space? Or how do I, you know, how do I 
that's neat. I already knew the institutions weren't going to love me back. Um, and it almost seems like smug in that. Does that sort of make sense when it's just that? And like, I get it. Like, I agree. Institutions don't love you back. But like, how do we? Right. We have how to do survive. We cultivate, yeah. And how do we cultivate, cultivate places of love as multiply marginalized people in institutions that are not designed for us, that don't, don't not just love us, but like are doing everything to sort of diminish that. So there's like a very different question, you know, and I feel like part of that means like allowing our hearts to be disloyal to our institutions right um in a way uh and i think that when we can allow ourselves that space because i think some of it we are actually being surveilled but i think when we allow ourselves to hold space to being disloyal to our institutions that it allows us to find like little pieces of leverage in our teaching that if we're like sitting with our discomfort we're able to identify these like uh sort of micro moments of resistance that we can kind of fold into our teaching when we allow ourselves the space to be disloyal because i think part of one of the mechanisms of violence in higher ed is that kind of surveillance that then teaches you to surveil yourself in ways that no one has any idea what you're doing in the classroom right in that and that isn't to say i mean i say this as someone who's actually like been recorded in the classroom by a conservative student like years ago so i mean there is and yet I, I want to point out, I was recorded in the classroom only to have the students say, you know, I came to the classroom recording you thinking that I was going to catch you saying something. And he's like, but it turns out like you left space for us to like experience this thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know I did. I did do that. <laughs> so, I mean, all this to say there that I don't want to ignore that as like a possibility, right? Because I, I do know that that is a possibility. But I think that like when you can allow yourselves to be disloyal to institutions it allows you to find those moments where you can say oh okay this doesn't feel great and here are some things oh that's right no one's watching me right now i'm watching myself right and then finding those moments to press back and that is going to look different based upon a lot of factors in higher ed um and in terms of like institutional rank in terms of positionality because i feel like sometimes you can get by with a lot more when they don't even care about you and you're being ignored you know what I mean? So it's like, oh, okay, cool. I'm just going to try this and see. And then it's like, yeah, I trusted my instincts and it turns out it super worked. I'm going to keep on doing it. <laughs> yeah. One practical uh, response that I would also give is to say that if it has never occurred to you to embrace dread as your friend, or if you don't have an understanding that the body has knowledge, then you should listen to this podcast because Joe and I frequently are very much like trust your instinct, don't prioritize the institution above self, and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, yeah listen thank to you. this podcast. Yes, yes. That, is, that is right. So, another kind of practical nuts yeah. and bolts question which you've kind of talked about it a little bit so i i hate to risk redundancy but That's okay um so here was a great quote and it's about i think specifically classroom exercises and so forth so the quote is that i've you say i have res resisted the pressure to genuflect at the altar of chronology and if i may the textbook industry favoring instead to organize my courses around pressing contemporary issues and highlight individual articles and book chapters by cutting edge theorists and i just wondered if you could elaborate more especially for those of us who you know, if you're teaching like a survey, right, you know, we're sort of, and, and you talk about this at length in the article, but for people who don't have the, um, yeah, of course we yeah. want to link the article in the show notes, but for folks oh, who haven't cool. read that, so how, how, yeah, how can you get to that? What made you decide, screw this chronology, the <laughs> things are more important or, or whatever? Yeah. So, I mean, the short answer is a very not great pedagogical experience. Like if you've ever had a moment, so I was as a, I feel like this, this, um, I feel like so, so many of us, we become good teachers through either like hitting potholes or remembering like the potholes that were hit while someone else was driving the bus and we were just in the classroom like, ah, what is this, right? So, so I mean, like one of the, I had this moment as a graduate student, I had been like angling to teach an LGBT studies course for a really long time. Someone backed out at the last minute and I got to teach one and it was kind of one of those, you're just the baby graduate student, so you're going to take this like form syllabus and teach it. And it was like, we're going to start with Grecian history and go, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm dying. So I'm like teaching and dying at the same time, you know, experiencing my own, like, whoo, you know, dry like I'm teaching this material. Um, and just because it was just, oh, I just, there's nothing that can kill the joy, right? Um, then that sort of chronological uh, thing. So I think part of it is, is, is definitely, uh, is definitely that, but I also feel like, um, 
some of it's sort of like disciplinary dependent, like so like textbooks in LGBT studies uh, tend to really reduce and flatten experience in ways that are deeply troubling. And so like if you actually want to have like substantive conversations with students, you do kind of need to pull um, from contemporary articles. And then you're then you're kind of like looking for like what are articles that like I, I, I do assign articles that are confusing to students and we work through those, but I often look for like ones where it's like, what, what are ones that are going to have a big impact for students? Like what they can get out of this, you know, what can I kind of create and curate experiences around? So, I mean, but I think that looks a little bit different in, in uh, something like a tech writing course or a composition course, because there are sometimes I might pull a chapter from a textbook, but what I actually do is just kind of pull from like say five or six open access textbooks, right? And because I think sometimes when, and I do that when I teach, um, when I have taught the graduate course on teaching, um, sort of introducing graduate students to teaching, you know, uh, English courses, um, I'm like, textbooks fine, you might be sort of shoehorned into this, but like relying on one textbook is like getting the your life all of your life advice from like the same person right and that's like not always neat and the other thing is that if you are really kind of doing that work of wanting to create like immersive experiences for your students eventually you're going to kind of come to a place where it's like you've got this you've got this flow and then you're realizing the more you're kind of teaching and in, in, in alignment with like curating experiences you're going to find yourself like more at odds with textbooks and like you can't just like follow that kind of chronology you have to be able to you know pull and and kind of trust your instincts and i think that like unfortunately one of the structures of um so much of education is doing it's our various like various power brokers and industries doing their damnedest to guess like educators into thinking that they don't know what they're doing and that without the guidance and the bumpers of a uh, textbook that we are just going to be out of our depth and then you know the 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 open secret like that the people oftentimes who are like creating said like instruments of evaluation or even the textbooks themselves are not in fact you know steeped in the scholarship of your field what so it's just it's really kind of wild right so i guess that's that's my long-winded answer i feel like that was a lot of sentences Oh, yeah. we love long-winded answers around here. And I was okay, you know, really impressed that you um, assign your students sometimes articles or readings that are difficult for them. Part of my charm is that I assign my students articles and readings that are difficult for me. And so <laughs> then, and then I'm just like, okay, let's figure this out um, together because I don't necessarily know what's going on either. So, <laughs> so. And that's so valuable too, because I feel like I, I think about, I would, I would have loved that in, in, in any point in my schooling because I feel like so much especially in graduate school there was this like performance of like everyone came in knowing everything and then if you didn't know you're just out there like is it just me is it just me and like so like that would have just been so super valuable to like have a professor be like let's figure this out you know like I'm not expecting you to like come in being like I know this and I feel like too like that's another sort of like to get I love that you do that too, because I think it shows that like the more you actually know about something, the more you are able to admit like how much you don't know, right? Does that sort of make sense? And that's so good because it's like a different relationship towards learning that's like a lot less violent that I think would like de-traumatize our graduate students and our programs if we did that. What? So I don't know if that's, was that an experience that, or is this just me pulling from my own trauma? Like, is that something that you all, Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely remember thinking that, you know, or being so intimidated by my professors and I'm like, oh my gosh, this person knows everything. And and thus I can't say anything because I'm going to be deemed insufficient. And so I'm like, you can say things. I do not in fact know everything. And in fact, I don't know most things. And and I think Joe has said this was also sort of counterintuitive in a discipline where we know a very specific set of things very well for people to be so intimidated, but so really wanting to pull the curtain back from that process yes. and a, a poor Wizard of Oz analogy I was trying to make there. But anyway. No, that's um, a great Wizard of Oz analogy. And I, just, I also appreciate the reference to the Wizard of Oz because I often kind of feel like that person. You know, like, Don't look back here. This is, this is a yeah, mess back here. I just threw all true. the dust pans. And, 
<laughs> bags that I meant to recycle at the grocery store back here. <laughs> Let's not don't get started on the, the recycling. It's probably gonna take over my house soon. Oh. So another quote, and this we actually I think have to some degree talked a little bit about explicitly because you talked about part of the process is that we've been so indoctrinated that we're starting to surveil ourselves. But I'll offer the quote anyway, because I think it's just a wonderful quote. And then, of course, if there's anything else you want to expand on, then, you know, feel free to. But you say towards the end, we are not cops. We are not bankers. We are not bosses. We are not drill sergeants. We are not beneficent dictators or and this goes to our earlier conversation, words that we can't pronounce, magnanimous rulers. I cannot, I don't know if I, I always screw that word up. And quite frankly, the fact that so many of us have been encouraged to operate under such frameworks ought to give us pause. And so I guess thinking about that, how does this play out for people or in terms of academic evaluation, maybe even early in your career, were you in a unit or a department that was concerned with optics or metrics, you know? What does that look like? So I am actually really glad that you answered this question because I feel like you're right. There's like always risk attached to this. And I'm not going to lie to you and say that like I have not been scrutinized uh, or um, that there hasn't been, you know, potential uh, blowback. You know, that's a that would be that would be a lie Uh, because I have. Right. Um, So I feel like one of the things that I appreciated that you were asking uh, was about this idea of like how that plays out in terms of like academic evaluations. Um, and I feel like all of us, I'm sure, have like had these moments where like, yeah, okay, we all know that these academic evaluations, right, are like trash, that this is a metric that we like know from like various peer-reviewed studies is something we shouldn't be doing. And like our administrations are like, yeah, we're still going to do it. Thank you very much. We're not going to follow your, you know, expertise at all. No, no, we're just going to keep on, keep on doing this because you feel gaslit and controlled. So that's why we're keeping them. Um, so yeah, like, I would say like one, just sort of holding space, right? That those kinds of evaluations, even if we're talking about policy, the ways that like departmental policies are designed and the ways that like certainly at any point, like a predatory, a predatory person or a culture could, you know, weaponize like gray areas and policy um, to shut people out that they just think are threatening because it challenges the status quo. And, and, that's, and that's real. And that's like a real risk. And it's definitely something that I've experienced. So I certainly wouldn't want to um, like make it seem like um, that um, to, to reference central world that we're following like the rainbow road, like in the sense that like, I love like the space that this takes us in the classroom, but I also feel like, you know, it's not always, uh, not always great. I mean, I want to talk about too, that, that like so much of, so I've already talked about how sometimes if your uh, institution devalues like your discipline or if they devalue where you are, like whether you're at a regional campus, you're a non-tenure track, sometimes you get ignored in ways that allow you to kind of have leverage to do more and they're not even noticing, right? But I think that the closer, I think that that the two factors that definitely expose a person to risk are definitely, um, you know, being a multi-marge faculty member or, you know, um, and then also the, the, I think the closer that there's a perception that you might come to advancement or power or that a platform might be taken seriously, that's the moment in which the institution is going to set its sights on you. And the way that the institution is going to respond to you in those instances are going to be decisively different um, and uh, are meant to sort of crush you, right, uh, in ways um, like sort of like on purpose. So um, there are different ways in which, you know, I think a person can respond. And I think too, in, in terms of like the optics, if you're a multi-marge person, like even just walking into a space, right? We're talking about like the optics, right? In the ways that we are, that like immediately we are going to be sort of like clocked as um, not holding up standards or fill in the blank, right? Um, and so that's, that's really kind of um, not great. But I also want to say that I also simultaneously have had an experience of knowing what it's like to have, I think so much of the question you're asking is also a question about administrative leadership. Um, So I have a regional campus dean who is like the best dean that I have ever worked with. He is just I cannot say enough about how great um, he is. And it's not just that he does all the things that you know regional campus deans are supposed to do, but he trusts the expertise of his faculty 
And he actually like welcomes moments where I think many of us know, and Sarah Ahmed has several books on the idea of when one raises an issue, right? That when one one offers a complaint, one becomes the complaint that must be vanquished, right? Um, But an emotionally intelligent administrator not only trusts your expertise, but like welcomes moments where someone says, you know, this does not feel this does not feel fair. This does not feel equitable. And they'll be genuinely curious and say, you know, tell me more about that. Like, I'm really interested. And then they'll also really care about like the embodied and human experiences of the people who are students and who are faculty that they are responsible to, right? I think that one relationship to power is like, I am uh, over you and you will do what I say. And if you raise uh, an issue, you will be vanquished. And I think, unfortunately, so much of the institution is like that. But I do think that I want to like sort of like hold out hope for for people who do decide hey I want to be an administrator like there are hallmarks of like good administration that can make someone uh feel as if they have the space to do these things right because so much of that we can't take on ourselves so I want to say that to all our aspiring you know assistant and associate dean and provost <laughs> emotional intelligence come on people but yeah just like um I guess the other thing that um I wanted to say too is just like as a survival strategy and this is practical this is my one thing if an institution does come to you and be like you're not this looks weird right one of the things you can do is like I'm so glad you asked that I'm so glad you brought that up here are the learning outcomes for this course here are the ways in which the activities that I am doing um, are tied to these learning outcomes, right? It, just because there's a learning outcome doesn't mean that we have to like uh, drain the life out of our students and ourselves to meet that learning outcome, right? And so as long as we can like find a way to attach to that and say, and I am so happy to provide you with peer-reviewed articles where, where my discipline talks about this, because then they're like, oh, you just, <laughs> I'm good now. I don't want your, I don't want your a- academic article. Because I do think that that is a neat, it doesn't always work, right? And I think too, I also want to like say, WPAs, we see you out there. Um, please make sure that if you are in a WPA role, that you are not policing your graduate students and that you're kind of like using emotional intelligence to kind of make your graduate students um, and your TAs and any other people that you're supervising, like feel safe. Right. Um, does that sort of make sense to like, because I think that that's an administrative role that often sort of gets overlooked, but I think is very discipline specific, but there's a lot of policing that can be happening in that role. And if you want to talk about creating like an innovative culture around teaching and pedagogy or rhetoric and writing, for instance, you need to make sure that we are creating an environment for people to feel safe to be able to experiment and to be curious and to talk about like the embodied experiences of what it's like to be in the classroom and what it's like to learn in those classrooms and to be open to not having all the answers. Awesome. That is amazing. Thank you so much for that. That was, was all that I asked for and then some, right? Oh gosh, thank you. And I hope that WPA thing wasn't a WPAs. We love you. I'm just saying, you know, (laughs) don't be cops. (laughs) <laughs> and and we, hope, we hope we have one or two WPAs or aspiring WPAs in our in our audience for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, if we don't, we will, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> and I want them with liberation in their hearts. That's what I want. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So the last thing I'll say, this is not actually a question, it's just a comment. I was really, really excited um, that you expanded on the Janelle Monet, how you've used the, the discography in your classes. I haven't used the discography. I've used the most recent um, dirty computer, I think, in, in classes oh, before. Yeah. And I, I was just really, really excited to see that and your innovative take on that. So awesome. I'm a fan. So I will be following, I'll be on the lookout for, you know, whatever you drop next, be it you know, <laughs> technology or, or some other random thing. So, you know, having said that, yeah. I think we usually like to you know, ask people or let people know where they can find you on all the social medias or how they can follow your work. So yeah, yeah. So I'll do uh, Twitter, uh, because that's really where I've been having many conversations. I'm on Facebook at GPAT Patterson, you can find me. I don't think that there's another GPAT Patterson. So it's pretty easy to find me there. Uh, I'm at Dr. G Pat on Twitter. Um, and don't be confused because I believe that my emojis are a rainbow, a unicorn and a heart emoji. Uh, so we'll just sort of know, I don't have a name there, but at Dr. G Pat is me. Uh, I, I love interacting with people on Twitter and, and talking about things, talking about pedagogy. And then 
my stuff is sort of scattered in edited collections and like really awesome journals. I want to shout out to the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics, which I think is really cultivating a space for some really innovative work. Um, and then also constellations. Uh, and I also really uh, am loving the um, loving the editorial vibe at Patho right now. So I mean, I just there. So I'm, I'm scattered in in all of those. Um, and right now, I'm just kind of. Uh, I'm kind of vibing to try to sort of figure out like, what is GPAT going to do next? So the, actually the last thing that I wrote was um, that the loving students piece. And now I'm doing something that I've never done before, which is being like, you know what? I'm just going to see what happens. Like I'm going to see what I want to do. And I, and I'm really kind of being led towards thinking about and writing about what it might mean to teach from practices of joy. Um, and also talking about fun things like trans intimacy. So if any of those things, or if just like, I don't know, uh, various other weird things that I'm into, like, I don't know, birds and gardening and animated films, if any of those things are your jam, and you also want to talk about like abolition and pedagogy and institutional justice, please follow me on social media because I like talking about those things. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I have followed you on Twitter now and the other people know where they can follow you. And Joe will get all the secondhand knowledge because I come back and report to them everything on Twitter. I know we need to we need to get them on Twitter. I am yeah. I've been on the fence. It'll happen one day soon, unfortunately. <laughs> but you know, it's not. It's not as. It's not as. It doesn't require the same sort of like emotional intimacy, if that makes any sense. Like it's. I think you don't necessarily have to be sort of sucked into like, oh, I need to like create hard boundaries here in a way that, would you say that that's your experience as well or with Twitter or? Yeah. I mean, I sort of resist uh, the Twitter rabbit hole. So even though I'm on there, (laughs) I try not to aggressively, I try not, I don't check in daily on Twitter. So that's the one. So healthy. Yeah. So I don't necessarily know that Joe is the type of person I say, I think, I, Joe, I think you would be better about your boundaries than some of my other friends who will not go to Twitter because they know that they won't do like anything else, but respond to, to tweets all day. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I might be I might be getting slightly better about not wasting not spinning my wheels on on the social media. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for Gemini's. It's hard for Gemini's. <laughs> yeah, usually what? that's when I go to GPAT to say like you know tell me to calm the fuck down, go away. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel we, like we all need that calm the fuck down, friend. So that's that's good. <laughs> I'm usually the burn it the fuck down friend, but I do sometimes get from a deeper source. <laughs> we, we do play both roles for each other sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I'm I can't figure out how. I'm a mom of three with three kids and I'm like the turn the fuck up friend. So I'm like time to sleep when you're dead. Let's, you know, let's <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. Awesome. So yeah. That's awesome. All good. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, G Pat. We're really glad that we could have you and discuss your amazing work. Yeah. I'm, and I'm super I was yeah, this was awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, everyone. So um, again, Constance and Joe, you can find us at the unpack this podcast at gmail.com and on Twitter at the unpack this podcast. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, don't at me, but uh, yeah. Um, so thank you again. And we will talk to you all soon.